Well, nobody I know would say they're perfect, but everybody I know would say they're not like a horrible monster. Like they're somewhere between like Hitler and Jesus. You know, if you have like some kind of spectrum, I'm like somewhere in the middle. Now, nobody I, I know would say this world is perfect, but a lot of people I know would have some kind of weird generic faith that like this world's gonna work out its problems eventually. Like, somehow like things will work out. So I think humans really are glorious, beautiful creatures. We have an amazing capacity to create beauty. We also have the ability to uh, create unspeakable horrors in this world. But for most of us, we're in that middle. You know, we're not gonna win the Nobel Peace Prize, but we're not gonna commit genocide either. So like we're somewhere here, like what about us? What, what do we do? The glorious, beautiful creatures in the middle. What we often do, what I know I do, is we tend to overestimate our good and underestimate our bad because we all kind of want to see ourselves as good. I mean, that's, that's fine, that's legitimate. But we probably think, if my good kind of outweighs enough of my bad, then that makes me good. But who's doing that weighing? Who's writing that formula up? Of course, we are. That seems, I don't know, it seems a little underhanded. I don't know if I trust myself to be able to do that. I mean, uh, there ought to be a system in place for, for me to find out, am I doing this right? Do I have the maths right? I think what we really need to, to, to truly see where we really are, we need someone external, like an objective view, like an independent review, kind of like even have someone review finances, some kind of independent person, someone external to come in and tell us how we're doing. Now, this is something, because all of us humans are far too involved in humanity, this is something that only a God could do. Only a God could really be objective and tell us how we're actually doing. Only God can be impartial. And God tells us that everyone by themselves, regardless of where you are with God or church or Bible, whatever it is, everyone is out of balance by themselves. We're so weighed down with our own brokenness that there is no hope for us to do enough good to counteract it. It's like buying a house on a credit card and only making minimum payments. You will be buried in debt, buried. And being buried has all these other kind of knock-on effects. Like if I have this pile of brokenness on my back, how in the world can I help other people? If other people have this pile, how in the world uh, can, can they help me? You know, we can help each other with like small things, but like the big thing, big things, like me and God, how are other people gonna help me with that? We can't because we're all buried. And the brokenness that we came into this world with, the brokenness, that, let's be honest, that we bring in, in ourselves, there are consequences to all of it, consequences in our life now and consequences when we die because people who are buried are dead. That's who gets buried, dead people. Like consequences for the buried is death. I mean, have you ever had a fear of being buried alive? I'm sure that lists on like the top fears of, that sounds really, I don't even want to think about it very long. I'll probably get super anxious and we'll have to like, you know, start twitching or whatever. I can't imagine that kind of anxiety. And yet here we are, glorious, beautiful creatures burying ourselves alive. The weight of being full of ourselves. That's a weight that, that buries us. Experiencing aspects of death now and then experiencing aspects of death truly completely when we eventually die. Now, do you know who knows all that better than we do? God knows all that better than we do. He knows our predicament better than we do. And he sees these impossibly beautiful creatures in this impossible situation. He's come to change things, to make the sad things become untrue, to actually unbury those of us who are buried. And so what we're gonna be talking about today is how in the world did someone dying 2,000 years ago, see, Isaiah is looking forward to someone dying in the future. We look back to someone dying 2,000 years ago. How in the world does that matter for us today? Why does that matter? 
Like, what, what's the deal with that? Okay, that's cool. Maybe you believe Jesus is real. Maybe you don't. Maybe you believe he died or rose again. Maybe you don't. But like, even if you do believe all that, like, what's, why does that matter? What's, what's the point? Now, we're all in different places when it comes to Jesus. And you might be suspicious, like maybe Jesus isn't even like a real person. Maybe he didn't even really exist. And if he did, he certainly wasn't God. Like, he's just a guy. Or maybe you're interested like in trying some of, the, some of these ideas on, but you're not really fully convinced yourself of all the claims that Jesus has about himself. Or maybe you've been around Jesus and the church for a while and kind of take him for granted. You're like, yeah, it's Jesus is cool. He's paid for my sins and I get to go to heaven. Cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah, blase. Or it could be religious and Jesus is good for that couple of hours that we meet together, but really not much more than that. But let me tell you this, if what we're going to read today, if this is actually true, if it really is true, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. It shakes us out of our seats. And it's, uh, it's, it's going to, it, let me tell you, if this is true, it's going to mess you up. It's really going to mess your life up pretty badly, but for good. It'll mess you up badly for good, I promise. And it changes our whole lives. Now, wh- wherever you are with like belief in Jesus, struggling to believe, like firmly believe, but maybe take it for granted, wherever you are with that, all of us can stand to grow a little bit more and come a little bit closer to God. So we're going to be talking about these three things today. It's always three things, right? Didn't mix up with two or four, gonna get crazy. Now we're back to three. Uh, so we're gonna talk about the servant's suffering, talk about the servant's death, and then we're gonna talk about what did the servant, who's Jesus, what did his suffering and death actually do? So let's first talk about the servant's suffering. Uh, Jesus, the servant, is first what we see is basically, uh, in, in, the, in these verses here, is misunderstood. He's not readily seen as like a capital S servant, like a God-like person. Uh, if you read chapter 40, uh, 53, verse 2, uh, we get some reasons why people might miss who Jesus is. One, he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. This basically saying, like, he grew up like every other human. He grew up just like us. Like, um, I, you know, he, he's my brother, or he was my friend, and we grew up and we ran through the streets together. He had a completely normal and earthly upbringing. Uh, he has a human family tree, son of a carpenter. That's like, you know, not fantastic, not horrible, just kind of in the middle. How could a normal man be the servant? That's the reason why people might miss him. Another, and that's a great question. Another um, reason is how can, verse one says, the arm of the Lord. How can the arm of the Lord be someone different than the Lord? Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's like talking about two different people here. There's the arm of the Lord and then the Lord. Like, what's the deal with that? It's a good question. Also, there's nothing in, in how uh, this servant was amazing. There's nothing in how he was kind of out of the ordinary. Verse two uh, says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us like him. So he's not like this, you know, ripped Jesus. Nothing in his appearance, anything we desire him, you know, tearing it up at the cross. This is the exact opposite of thing that happened at the cross. I love this kind of stuff. I love really bad religious heart. I think it's so hilariously funny and bad. I don't know. It's probably sacrilegious too, um, but there you go. Uh, nothing in his appearance that anyone would desire him. Now, I don't know if even that is something worth desiring either, um, but he's not the ripped Jesus with flowing locks. He's not like Fabio Jesus, kind of like, oh, so I'm riding on horseback. He's gonna come and steal me away. No, he's just a normal guy. He's misunderstood when he's around. And that's why the question in verse one is asked, who has believed this message? Like, this is an amazing thing, but who has believed it? It seems like no one's really getting it. And it gets actually more difficult because more than not being supermodel Jesus, we read words like appalled, disfigured, marred, 
The suffering itself is revolting, but it's also beyond that. It becomes him, himself, that's revolting. Verse, uh, starting in verse three, he was despised, rejected, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. Like people can't even, can't even look at him because there's like so much shame. You don't want to like have a look at it. He's not shiny on the outside, unlike so many of our desperate counterfeit, counterfeit wannabe gods. And more than that, we are shamed for him because he's shameful. Now, this is not only misunderstanding the suffering of the servant, it's missing him completely. That, uh, they and we miss out on seeing the servant, seeing Jesus for who he really is. We believe him to be shameful. We believe the cross itself to be shameful. And it's so bad that we feel shame for him. I don't know if you've ever seen the office, like the original, the real office, the UK version, not the US version. Uh, it, it, have you guys seen this? Yeah, it is so uncomfortable. Christina cannot even handle watching it because like the awkwardness somehow reaches through the screen and grabs her like, ah. Um, it's just very, very awkward. It's really, really awkward. I love it because um, uh, I'm weird. Um, but uh, it's that kind of, you know that feeling, or maybe you've been in a conversation before where someone is very strange and awkward and so cringy and you're just like, you're feeling the shame that that person ought to feel and that person not feeling any of it because they don't have to understand what's going on. It's that kind of thing that's going on with Jesus. It's that same kind of thing. With Jesus' suffering, it's not that his uh, physical suffering was worse than any human being ever, but it's that Jesus experienced disfigurement from being an individual, separated from God, separated even from humanity. And that's something that we kind of want to distance ourselves from because it's not very pretty. In his suffering, he was misunderstood and missed. The servant's uh, suffering was also completely undeserved. He is cut off from the land of the living, completely isolated in verse eight of chapter 53. Uh, it says, he was cut off from the land of the living for his transgressions of my people, he was punished. Now, why is he receiving a punishment? Not for him, transgressions of God's people. That's why Jesus is being punished. Not Jesus' transgressions, God's people's punish, uh, transgressions. And verse nine says, he's done no violence. There's no deceit in his mouth. Jesus' suffering was completely undeserved, and yet he went willingly. It was voluntary. Verse 7, he didn't open his mouth. He could have. Uh, on this way to undeserved punishment, he's silent. Jesus was misunderstood in his life, missed in his undeserved voluntary suffering. So he didn't come as the all-powerful, all-knowing kind of half-floating guru, even though he is all-powerful and all-knowing, all-knowing and probably could half-float if he wanted to, I guess. Uh, he was misunderstood. He was missed out on suffering for what he didn't do and did so voluntary. So if you're in a bad place today, or if you've been in a bad place recently, Jesus knows what it's like to be in a bad place. Oftentimes we're in a bad place. There's at least maybe even 1% of a reason, like of consequence that we need to own. For Jesus, it was 0%. And he knows what that's like more than any of us ever will. So he knows what it's like to be there. I mean, what a humble way for a God to come into a world that does not it's not how I would do it. I'd come like rip Jesus, you know, wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't even go to a cross, you know, just like kind of win something. I don't know what I'd do. But that's how God is. But here's the weird thing. We just talked about how horrible it is and how like kind of lowly and despised he is. But it says that he's going to be exalted. It says that a few times. How is this whole thing, this whole thing that starts in verse 13, talks about the kind of exaltation of the servant. What's the deal here? Uh, exalted is maybe not a word you would use all the time. It's to kind of be like lifted up or put above other things. Uh, it's another way of saying kind of raised up above all other stuff, all other, whatever else might be out there. But so far we've seen the opposite of that. 
the way that the servant will be exalted is this. He will be raised up as he is lowered into death. He is exalted as he is raised up, raised up on a cross to his death. So he doesn't just suffer, he dies. From verse four, this is, we're, we're told about this. He's punished by God, he's stricken, he's afflicted. Verse five says he's pierced for our sins. He says he's crushed for our sins. The end of verse six, the Lord has laid our iniquity, our sins, our brokenness of us all upon him, all of our sins on the servant. And like a lamb to slaughter that ends in death. The servant has not only suffered, he has died. And a humiliation that kind of leaves us appalled. Now, in these verses, God shows us there is an exaltation that lies beside humiliation. It's like not, not in tension with each other, although in our brains maybe it might be, and not opposed to each other, but right side by side, exaltation and humiliation, both in equal parts. And this is a thing that God loves to do over and over and over, especially in the Old Testament. What God loves to do is this, uh, this, like, this term of like ironic reversal. You think things are going this way, and all of a sudden, the last minute, everything turns backward. Any good film you've seen always has, especially like a good like caper film, um, you know, think of uh, like Ocean's Eleven or something like that. There's always some kind of like trick, like reverse kind of thing at the end. And that's like, oh, that's crazy. The first time you see it, it's awesome. And then you see it again, and you're like, I know what's going to happen, and it's kind of cool. Yeah, but that's, that's what God loves to do. He loves to do that. And uh, all throughout the Bible, we see these kinds of stories. And what we mean for death, God ends up using for life. And a death becoming life is the ultimate form of ironic reversal. That's exactly what goes on in Jesus' life. So how in the world does this death actually lead to exaltation without just saying that it's true? How does that happen? Well, the answer to this is actually the same question of why did Jesus die? That's a great question to ask. It's a great answer to know. We're not going to get to all of that. There's a lot of stuff going on with that question. But there is some stuff going on in here. So if you look at verses 4 through 6, this this answers some of that question. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in the servant's death, in Jesus' death, there's this great exchange going on, a great substitution. If you imagine it as like a ledger book, like you're trying to like make the sums equal each other at the end of the day. Here's what Jesus took from us. He took our pain, he took our suffering, he took our transgressions, he took our iniquities, and that leads to the punishment that we get from God. He took that as well. And, that, and this is just in three verses here. I mean, the Bible has a lot more to say, but this is in three verses. So that's what Jesus took from us. And here's what we get. So what we get is pain and suffering removed. We get peace with each other and with God. We get healing. All of our wounds get to be healed. Our transgressions and iniquities get to be removed. We get to have a life that's freed from that kind of power that that weighs on us. And our punishment ultimately has been taken up. If you have a ledger book going on, that'd be the most unbalanced thing ever. No accountant would ever be like, yeah, that looks good. Let's check that off. That would make someone like Anne, who's probably watching right now from home, uh, she would hate that ledger book. I mean, she would love the truth, the spiritual truth, the spiritual reality. That would be the most unbalanced ledger book you've ever seen in your life. He gets all the bad stuff, and we get all the good stuff. That's not how life normally works, in my experience. It is gloriously unbalanced, gloriously unbalanced. Jesus has our substitute, taking what should be on us, giving us what we don't deserve. This is why Jesus died. One of the one of the reasons to make this happen. 
There's a theolo- if you want to be get all nerdy theological here and impress your friends, which I know you do, that's what happens at a, how come nobody talks to me at cocktail parties? I wonder. Um, you could use the term penal substitutionary atonement. That's what's going on here, that there's a substitution going on and we've been made right with God. That's a glorious reality. And it's in this glorious lack of balance that Jesus' death can also be his exaltation because he's won this for himself and he gets to be generous and, and gives it to us. It's not just any death. People die all the time. It's a death that actually did this in these verses. And for who? Who did, this, who, who did Jesus go after? For people who deserved it? No, people who definitely didn't deserve it. For people who were far from God, like me, like you. So we talked a little bit about Jesus' suffering, a little about uh, his death. But, um, and that's all well and good, but there still ought to be, I think, a question of what actually did it do? What did Jesus' suffering and death do? And maybe this is just a good story. We should still come to the place where we're like, like, so what? Like, what's the deal with the cross? Christians talk about this cross all the time. They have these things around their necks all the time. What's the deal with that? That's kind of weird, like a symbol of execution they hang around themselves. Like, what's the deal with that? The servant's death accomplishes something in itself. At the event of the cross, something actually happened. It wasn't potential for something to happen. Something actually happened, is what these verses tell us. And what was it? Well, the answer to this is also the answer to like, what does it matter for me that some guy 2,000 years ago died? We looked at why did Jesus die? Now this is more of the question, like, what does it matter? So the big answer is the cross is where Jesus accomplished salvation, where he kind of finished salvation. Salvation is this kind of broad, massively broad term of, of getting all the good things in life and being right with God and everybody else. He achieved it. The cross didn't leave potential for that to happen. The cross is where it actually happened. And this word uh, of salvation, again, if you've been around the church or maybe you use it, and I know I'm sure I use it more often than I actually think about the word when I'm using it. Um, it's something much more than like a future eternal life. I mean, it is, it is that. It's gonna be with God forever, but it's so much more than that. And we're gonna see, um, we're gonna see some of that. In fact, I'm gonna read verses 10 through 12, and we'll see kind of what does salvation actually mean because if that salvation was accomplished at the cross, what does it actually mean? So verses 10 through 12, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord prosper his hand. After he has suffered, he'll see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous ser- servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I give them a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life to death, was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The very first thing in these kind of chunk of verses here, the very first thing of what does the cross matter for me is Jesus identifies with us. The cross especially is where Jesus identifies with us. How we're doing internally or how we're not doing internally within ourselves, how we're doing with other humans, like that horizontal aspect of living, and how we are with God, that vertical aspect, internal, horizontal, vertical, is all this, is how is uh, where Jesus identifies with us. So when you feel like you are cut off from the land of the living, when you feel like you're alone, you feel like no one understands you or gets you, and you will be in those places. You have been, I'm sure, and you will be in the future. What we have, Jesus really was in senses that we don't really know. He knows what that's like even more than any one of us ever will or have known. So that means he knows what it could be like for you. He may not have walked in your exact particular situation but he knows exactly what suffering is like in deeper ways. So when you're despised, or even if you're not and you just feel like you are, 
or even on a bigger level, when what we've done, when how we live, not just cuts us off from other humans, but cuts us off really from knowing God himself. See, each of us has that pile of brokenness that we've brought into this world, and it's kind of like a blackout tent. Have you ever used a blackout tent before? It's, it's kind of weird. It's almost like sensory deprivation situation going on. It's like it could be the sun could be blazing outside. You're in a blackout tent, and it could be really, really hot inside, but it's like you can't even see your hand in front of your face. That's what it's like living without being connected to God. You're not really, the sun could be shining outside or not. You don't even know. You don't have the possibility of even knowing. And we live in there, no light coming in, cut off from other people, away from God, broken within us. Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus, the son of God, God himself knows what it's like to be cut off from God. What does that actually mean theologically? Don't ask me, I don't know. (laughs) Verse 12 says, on the cross, he took up his place among us broken people. He was labeled not just among humans, he was labeled among what it says, transgressors, the worst of us. That's who we are. That's who Jesus became. So Christ identifies with us. It's not like him being God prevents him from knowing you. It's the, it's the opposite. So he identifies with us. The second thing is that Christ's suffering and death makes us right with God. This is where like salvation itself gets, gets won, gets accomplished. He becomes the offering for our sin in verse 10. He bears our iniquities in verse 11. He bore the sin of many in verse 12. Do you think the, the author's trying to tell us something? Over and over and over again. He bore it, he bore it, he bore it for lots of people, for transgressors, for sinners, for people who are bad, people who are broken. I think he's trying to get t- tell us something. That means sin is put to death. For those who follow Jesus, your sin has already been paid for, already been, and already been dealt with. God isn't doubling the payment. He's satisfied. And we are justified, which means we're made right before God. More than just taking like the blackout tent off and then like, okay, now you need to find your way in the world. We're given a mansion. We're given this like massive mansion or, or a two-bed flat in Trollton because it costs the same, really, doesn't it? This allows us to have a perfect relationship with the perfect God, for the perfect God to be close to us, not far away from us. And this vertical transformation affects our internal and horizontal reality as well. Once us and God are kind of made at peace, that changes how we interact with other humans. That changes how we interact within ourselves. By his wounds, we are healed, we're told, because we all have wounds. We have wounds from parents, wounds from friends, wounds from partners. Well-meaning people have wounded us, and people who don't mean so well wound us as well. Jesus takes them from us and gives us healing. To have a wound and be healed is to be made whole again. Jesus is in the business of making whole people. So this is how the path works. We're wounded, and let's be honest, we wound other people. We can't deal with it on our own. Christ has taken our wounds and gives us healing so that we can live as wholehearted, healthy people. And that is what salvation is. It's not just something that we wait for in the future. It's something we get to do, be a part of now. And Christ's suffering and death make us right with God. The last thing we'll talk about here is that Christ continues to lead us in his resurrection. On the cross, some things stayed dead. Not everything rose again from that cross. For Christians, we get to see our sin, we get to see our brokenness, all the dark things that we have brought into this world, that all stays dead, but Jesus doesn't. The only thing that rose again from that cross was Jesus. Everything else stayed dead and, and has stayed that way. God is showing us how Christ continues to lead us in his resurrection. Because in verse 10, it says, a servant will die, and it says, and, his, and he'll be able to see his children prosper. How in the world is that possible? Well, through Jesus, we'll be able to prosper because through him we get wholeness. 
John 8, uh, 12 says, and after Jesus has suffered, he will see the light of life. That term light of life gets used a lot. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus himself saying this. Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's 2 Timothy 1. In his resurrected life, Jesus wins for himself the spoils of victory. That's what verse 12 is all about. He will have a portion among the great. But what does he do? He doesn't keep it for himself. He divides the spoils with us. And now we're the strong. Before we're transgressors, now we're the strong. He has all the things and he doesn't keep them for himself. He's generous, he gives them to us. And that's exactly where the Holy Spirit comes into play, God himself. This is our reward with us empowering us, constantly realigning our lives with him, giving us what we need. So he continues to lead us in his resurrection. That is what salvation is and that's what Jesus has won for us. That's what happened at the cross. That's why it matters. Now God um, has had maybe quite a few things to say today in these verses and we really only skimmed across the top of, of some of them. We learned that his, suffering, uh, that his servant will suffer and die. How in that ultimate humiliation, um, it can be possible that he can be exalted. God also showed us the answer to why did Jesus die? And also the answer to like, what did it matter that Jesus died? That's so what kind of question. But let's all go back to where it started. Where are you when it comes to Jesus? All of us have these, all of us have these. You are suspicious and cynical of certain parts of Jesus because you don't want that to be true. Like, I wish he didn't say that. Or, or, or if, if Jesus did exist, he certainly wasn't God, maybe. Maybe you're interested. You're trying some of these ideas on, but you're not yet fully convinced. But wouldn't it be great if this was true? Wouldn't it be great if, all, if that ledger book was so po- could possibly be so gloriously unbalanced as that? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Many people think it's too good to be true. But what if it was true? That would be life-changing. That would be something organizing your life around. And it will mess you up for good, I promise you. Or maybe you've kind of grown accustomed to the church. You come here every week and you know, we reread these things and you're part of a missional community, maybe even lead one, and you take Jesus for granted. That's very, it happens all the time. It's why we need to do this all the time. Or maybe you're religious and Jesus is kind of good for, you know, take a box off a couple hours every now and then, but not, not for much more than that. Now, finding our life in his death means everything changes. That's what it means. The Jesus on Sunday morning is the same Jesus on Tuesday afternoon. The same Jesus when your kids are kicking off. Same Jesus when your boss asks you to come into work on a Saturday. All the things, it's the same Jesus. The same Jesus who's present in our marriage. The real Jesus wants to shake us out of our seats and have us live into this life that he's given us. In the New Testament, the uh, letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1, it tells, tells us that this whole plan that we're reading about now, that we just kind of got like a sneak peek into, this was a plan set in motion from before really time was even a thing or the world was even a, th- was even a thing. The Father and the Son and the Spirit put it together before the creation of the world. See, the world and this situation is not God's plan B. You are not God's plan B, as much as you might feel like it all the time. Like, uh, maybe I'm like B team or C team or whatever. You're not. You are 100% part of God's plan, wherever you are right now. From before you were born, from before this world even came into existence, God couldn't wait for you to know him. So the sinful world you were born into, the sins that you brought into this world, it's a horror, and you're burying yourself alive by living in it. It is so bad that it has to lead to suffering and death, and it will be either for us or Jesus. And we get to choose what that goes. We can either experience that suffering and death ourselves, or we can surrender and let Jesus take that from us. Those are the options that we have. And if Jesus does take our sins, our brokenness, our darkness, 
if you follow him, he's already taken on your suffering and death because he's already won salvation. You will die, yes, but you won't die. There's a way to die and not die. And if you want to learn more about that, that's not just a weird way to talk. (laughs) All because of what he's accomplished on the cross. And in the gospel of John, Jesus's last words on the cross was, it is finished. The things that are dead stayed dead. Only Jesus rose again. Only Jesus rose again. So your sins and therefore your suffering and your death, one day you'll be able to say it's finished completely. So don't try and resurrect the punishment that Jesus has already finished. God does not hate you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not like, oh, if only that person did a little bit better, then I'd really love him. If only that person, you know, actually like took time to, you know, read their Bible every day. Ah, then I'd really love him. Too bad, I guess I'll pick somebody else who's better. That's just not how, it's not how the Bible talks about God, but that's often what we think about him. Because Jesus, the victor, loves to share the spoils of war, his gift himself through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is inside of us. God isn't far from us. If you follow him, he's already inside of you and allows us to continue living in the life that we have in God. Now, Jesus has uh, left us a meal to remember and worship him by because we are forgetful, also because we take him for granted and also because we need to take those new steps into trusting him. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. Now, this is for anyone who's trusted in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. You just have to be someone who follows Jesus. Uh, Now, if you don't trust in him, what we're about to do is not something for you and that's fine. But if you want to join in with this, you can. That's the great thing about the gospel, about these, these uh, verses that we read today. Anyone can get, get, can get in on this. If you believe that Jesus has taken your death through his death and that he's given you a new life, this is for you. And the bread, uh, which is the wafer on top, represents Jesus's body. The cup represents Jesus's blood. And as we drink, we get to remember two things. First, the life it cost him to give us his life. And secondly, uh, the new life that we get through his death. Jesus drank from the cup that was God's rightful punishment from us. We don't drink from that anymore. We don't. And Jesus gives us a new life, his Holy Spirit, leading us and freeing us in all things. And both of those things are kind of what gets symbolized in the Lord's Supper. The wounds that others have inflicted on us, the wounds we've inflicted on other people, the death that awaits us all, nobody else can deal with that. Nobody else needs to because Jesus already has. In a moment, the way we do it um, at Redeemer is we take communion as we sing together. So you just take on your own as we sing. But in a moment, uh, when we sing, if you're a Christian, we're gonna eat and drink as we remember, as we worship the Lord Jesus. Let me pray.